Welcome and greetings, career-minded superstars. You are listening to the exclusive Career Coach, your podcast for all things career. And I'm Lisa Edwards, the indispensable career coach for superstars just like you. Now let's dig into this week's topic, shall we? today. Well, it is our last episode on this arc that we've done all quarter on leadership. And we've covered this from so many different angles. I hope it's really inspired you to think about both the being and the doing part of leadership. And I couldn't think of a better guest to wrap up this arc than Peter Barry. We're going to talk about kind of leading with a liberal arts degree, or I don't know, we'll find out what kind of a degree he has. Peter, why don't you tell us about yourself? Well, thank you so much, Lisa. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, come on to your show with you and to uh, hopefully inspire some people to step up to a new level of leadership in in their own lives. Um, I want to tell you a little story about some of the jobs I've had, and I want to see if you and your readers can guess what my degree is from everything I've done. So I've written benefit plans for an HMO. I've done claims determinations. I've worked in the underwriting department and worked for the COO of a half a billion dollar a year company. I've been the VP of operations for a mortgage lender. I've been a practice administrator for a group of four urologists running an entire medical practice with three locations. I've had as many as 52 direct reports. I've uh, been a salesperson and a sales manager and a regional sales manager for a Fortune 1000 company. And I've owned my own recruiting business. So if you heard someone who had all of that kind of background in both operations, customer service, and then into sales, what kind of background educationally do you think that person would have, Lisa? Oh, well, clearly you just have to have a business degree. I mean, they wouldn't allow you to do those jobs without a business degree, right, Peter? <laughs> well, and, and that's what I thought. I thought I would even have to have an MBA. But uh, the, the truth is that I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Drawing and Painting. How cool is that? I love it. Tell me everything. Well, yeah, it, it's interesting. Having, having an art degree, when I first thought about it, you know, when I decided to go from, okay, I'm going to be an artist into, well, I have a family now and I need to make some money. I need to provide for my family and support them. I thought, how in the world am I going to turn this to my advantage? And what I realized is that having a fine art degree made me an expert in solving problems. And that is the first key to moving from an entry-level position into leadership of any sort is every company, every organization is looking for people who can solve problems. So once I realized that, once I realized one of my true levels of expertise was understanding a problem and using that um, not even out of the box, but there is no box thinking of being a fine artist to find solutions that no one expected that worked better than anyone else could come up with. Once I realized that was my sort of superpower in the business world, then it really just became where did I want to go? That is so true. And I love that, you know, that idea of the liberal arts degree really preparing you to think, to solve problems, think critically. I worked at a a liberal arts university for, oh gosh, 13 years as the director of the career center. And that was one of the biggest skills that our students presented to potential employers. And I think for so many people, they think they have to learn how to do something in college. And that's really the mindset of like a technical school 
rather than a four-year university and certainly rather than a liberal arts degree. It's that idea of we're going to teach you how to learn, we're going to teach you how to think. Well, and I think it's not just that how to think. Um, our world is changing and we're moving into an evolving economy and one of the biggest currencies of that economy is emotional intelligence. Yes. And yeah, and, and being able to understand the impact to human beings of business decisions. We used to think of business impact just in terms of bottom line, but uh, you know, we have a, a workforce that I think next year or the year after will be 50% millennials. Yeah. And many, right, right, 50% millennials and younger in the workforce. And most people of the generation before that were concerned about how much they could accumulate. In my experience, working with millennials, um, mostly as my employees, quality of life was more important than what they could accumulate. And so emotional intelligence and how we solve problems from a well-rounded point of view is going to be much more valuable even in the next few years than it has been up to now. I couldn't agree with you more. And I was just reading a research a statistic about the degree to which emotional intelligence is important in hiring decisions, and I forget the numbers, but it was very high. And so sort of, you know, brush out of your mind this notion of, you know, should I apply for this job? Do I have the qualifications to apply for this job? And it's more about what do I really want to do? And what are those intangibles that I bring into the workforce, like my emotional intelligence, like my problem-solving skills, my critical thinking skills? Yeah, it's 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 really amazing because you know I was in fine art school, and I was working at a four star restaurant to support myself as I was going through school, and when I got out, and graduated, and moved to Tucson, Arizona from Atlanta, and started looking for a job in the corporate world, really the only thing that I think I thought that I could leverage was my ability to do an excellent job of customer service because of being in the restaurant industry. And so I landed in this HMO that was looking for customer service agents. And I, I passed insurance school in, I think, two days. Didn't take much, just studied and, and passed the test. And it became very rapidly apparent that one of my skill sets was taking the people who were incredibly upset, incredibly frustrated, uh, maybe even angry. I've even, I even had the Tucson Police Department on calls listening with me because someone started a call with, I'm going to come down there with an AK-47 and shoot this place up. Whoa. Yeah. 45 minutes later, I was his best friend. <laughs> we had solved the problem. And because I, I was able to do that, I moved into complaints, uh, which was handling formal complaints against the company, but as a customer advocate. So my ability to see their point of view as well as the company's point of view was really critical in being able to solve the problems that were presented to me. And that just led to understanding that I knew how to solve problems and then learning systems and learning how to do database development and software design. I've, I've done all sorts of crazy things that don't make any sense for having a BFA. And it doesn't sound like at any point you felt like you needed permissions from some external source to pursue a job that presented itself or seemed interesting to you at the time, you just decided that you were as good a candidate as anybody else and that that's the direction you wanted to go in. Am I right? Uh, absolutely. And, and actually, once I was within a company, 
that's when people's eyes would open because my point of view was so different than people who came through the business school treadmill approach where everything was a bottom line approach and the same processes had been applied and the same results kept coming out. I was a wild card and I came up with radically different ideas that were better. And so they, they noticed that and um, I worked for that HMO for four and a half years and I was hired out. Uh, I was working on my fifth job by the time I left, not because I applied for them, but because people would come and recruit me out of the job I was in. I think that's so beautiful. I'm reminded of uh, an intern of mine. I've actually interviewed her on this podcast and she now works for the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Her undergraduate degree is in communications. She got a master's in liberal arts, uh, which, or what is, yeah, uh, like direct study, like what's it called, individual study or something? Where right. You craft your own thing, which is clearly not geared towards any particular career. And I remember she said to them when she went in for the interview, you know, I don't have a banking background. I don't have a business background. Why are you even interested in interviewing me? And they said, because you don't, because you're going to, you have to communicate within the company and to external people. And we want someone who speaks, you know, English, plain English and does it well to communicate these things. We want somebody who can kind of sift everything we're doing through, you know, a, a sieve of common language and understandable communication. And I, that has always stuck with me. Yes. It, that makes a huge difference. You know, I, I, I've been blessed to not only work for some great people who, who taught me how to be a, a, a really good manager, but I've been a manager and, and, like any beginning manager, I made a lot of mistakes. But the thing I kept learning is that um, as an employee, you move up because you're willing to take on challenges. Where other people see problems, you see possible solutions, challenges. So that's something I would tell any young person who wants to move up in a company is find out where things are working horribly and offer solutions. That will get you a chance of, to, to move into leadership. And as a manager, I just love those people who are unafraid of what they see, who don't focus on how much work it's going to be to solve something, who don't focus on the negative of this isn't working, this is terrible, I hate this, but look at it and say there's got to be a better way. And even if they don't come up with the right solution, they come up with solutions. And, and when you do that, you open up your horizon in ways you cannot possibly imagine. Absolutely. I, I always told my employees, never come to me with a problem unless you've got a possible solution. It may not be the solution that I select, but I don't want you to just come to me and dump your problem in my office and then walk away. I want, I want you to be thinking about what the solution is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, that's that level of investment. Every company is looking for, for employees, not who are willing to give their lifeblood necessarily, but who are invested in the mission of the company. So if you're in, yeah, if you're invested in that mission, then you're willing to do whatever it takes to find out how to make it run better. So, so let's shift gears a little bit, Peter, and, and I want to think about this leadership uh, role kind of from the perspective of the company. So when you, you've been in a lot of different companies, you're doing some consulting work, I know now, and mm -hmm. you had your hands in so many different kinds of businesses. When we sort of look at circa 2019, what are sort of the leadership challenges that you're seeing 
in companies right now? Where are the gaps and the opportunities? Well, I think there's a, um, much like the, the intern you were talking about, there's a generational gap that I'm seeing. For my generation, and just full disclosure, I'm in my mid-50s, you know, um, we, are, we were always concerned with, at a certain point in our lives when having families, about having a work-life balance. Um, the generation before mine, my father's generation, my mother's generation, came out of a Depression-era mentality where accumulation was critical, almost as just a pure survival instinct. So whatever it takes. But the generation that's coming up now wants a life-work balance. And there's a huge difference in that, that their quality of life is more important than their quality of work. So in management, what that means is there's a gap, a motivation gap. Companies are built on that, that um, idea that people will do whatever it takes to get a job done. And the workers in the marketplace now are not the same people. And I was alluding to it with the, with the statement about 50% of the workforce being millennials. It's not that millennials can't work hard. Uh, I've had some phenomenal employees who were millennials, but their concerns are different. Their motivations are different. So the people who can learn how to bridge that gap between sort of the old guard, which is concerned about bottom line and your blood, sweat, and tears for the company, to the people who are coming in who are concerned about having an excellent quality of life, they want to support themselves, but they're not willing to give up their lives to do it. That's the gap right now that I see. I think that's, that's a brilliant observation. And I think, I was just thinking as you were saying that, that I wonder when millennials, millennials sort of fully take over <laughs> and are running the planet, they will tell you that they already are, but, but they're not quite yet. But when they are, I wonder if we're gonna see a virtual elimination of the 40 hour work week, because my sense is that millennials are like, hey, give me a job to do. And if I wanna do it from midnight to six, that's on me. And if I wanna do it and I can get it done in 20 hours a week and go play for 20 more hours a week than you get to play, then that's on me too. So I don't know if that's anything you've ever thought about, but it seems to me that's the direction we're gonna end up going in. Well, you know, that, that's interesting because my last position was for a small company based out of Thomasville and Tallahassee, Georgia. Uh, Tallahassee, Florida, and Thomasville, Georgia. Sorry about that. <laughs> and uh, we were a service organization open from 8.30 to 5.30, Monday through Friday. And um, one of my jobs was to work with the culture of the company. And after the first couple of years, we, at, at the end of year meetings, we stopped asking, what can we do to get more out of, the, out of the employees? And we started to ask the question, what can we do to be a better place to work? Because when you focus on that, then you get the people who are willing to put their all in when they're there. So we started doing some research, and one of the, the pieces of research I found was that in Germany, there's... A, very in, in very many cases, a 30 to 32 hour work week because they realize that there's a certain level past which people aren't productive any longer and exactly. that they need time to regenerate. Yep. Now, as a company that's open from 8.30 to 5.30 Monday through Friday, as customers who rely on you, how, how do you do that? So we came up with a Friday afternoon flex. So uh, everybody had a buddy in the company and every other week, 
um, as long as you didn't have something critical that had to be done, so there's an honor system involved in this, then you got to take the four hours of the afternoon off. So from one o'clock on was yours every other week. And it made such a huge difference in, in morale. And when morale goes up, productivity goes up. So we didn't lose any productivity and we had better morale and we attracted better people. Absolutely, and I, I seen, when I was in higher education career services, I was seeing these companies, and I always use Cerner as an example. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're out of Kansas City and they're uh, an electronic um, records for the healthcare industry uh, business, and they were primarily attracting millennials, and so when I went to visit them, I was so struck by the work environment and how you know they had a, they had a coffee shop on site and the workers could go in there and grab a coffee and there was a monitor at each table at each booth and they could work and share and then it was right next to a ping pong table and they could go take their break to go to the rec center at any time during the day that they felt like they needed to and there was on-site child care and it was just really set up to help with that work or life work as you say it uh, rather than work life and I actually call it blend uh, rather than balance, because I always think of balance as being a teeter-totter, and one side goes down, the other goes up. I like the idea of putting all the aspects of your life into a blender and just, you know, kicking that thing on to pulverize and getting it all in there mixed together where you don't know what's what, and it all just, it just comes out beautifully as one. I like that. I like that, the life-work blender. Yes. <laughs> I think that's so true. It is. Well, that, yeah, and I think that the companies that are understanding that uh, workers are not bees. They are not pre-programmed robots. They are human beings. That they, had ne they have needs. They have requirements. They have wants. And when they start aligning um, their mission with the, and, and getting the, their employees aligned with that mission and aligning themselves with their employees' mission in life, then everything works beautifully. It's... Um, it's really, it's such a, a beautiful thing when that happens. I, I couldn't agree more. And I was thinking as you were talking that we have for a long time paid salespeople on productivity, on results, not on the effort that they make or the time that they put in. And I think that as the human resource function and the, 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 um, the technology around uh, human resources gets more sophisticated I think more positions more in more companies will be, get based on your results. And, and here's what you're tasked with doing, and however long it takes you to do that, that's what you're getting paid for, not for punching a clock from eight to five, five days a week. Right, right. Although, there, you know, if you're in a service organization or, or an organization that, that provides service to its customers, just being there is part of the job. Exactly. That was, that was another little thing that we did in, in the previous company I worked for, and I thought this was brilliant. We had, a, um, we had an attendance bonus, which meant that every month you could earn up to, you could earn a flat $250 attendance bonus. And you either got it or you didn't. There was no, no grayscale there. And the way you got it was to be at work every day from 8.30 to 5.30, taking only an hour lunch. If you did that, you got your attendance bonus. Cool. I like and, it. And 
yeah, it was great because then we always had the people we needed. And when someone felt like, I don't really feel like going to work today, $250 is a pretty good incentive to get over a little grumpy feeling and get in the shower and get to work. Or, or getting creative about, you know, when that dentist appointment happens, because maybe they're open on Saturdays and, and you could give up your Saturday morning if there was 250 bucks in it for you. Right. Or, or miss lunch that day. Right. You know? Exactly. You know, the, that's beautiful. It, it, it really made a huge difference. And, and I'll tell you what, the people who worked hard and were there every week, every day anyway, got rewarded for being those people. Yeah, that's, that's like three, if you did that all year long, that's like 3000 bucks extra to your salary. That's not a small amount of money. Right, right. And those are the kinds of things we need to think about. Um, we need to think about the human side of, of management. And since we're talking about leadership, I want to share probably the most important lesson on management I ever learned. And it was before I ever became a manager. The best man at my wedding uh, and a good friend was the manager of a restaurant I worked in. And he was the guy who was the epitome of, of working, overworking. I mean, he worked, I think it was 56 straight days of 14 hour plus days. It was, it was ridiculous. But he was a phenomenal manager in terms of understanding that everybody is different. And if you try to treat everybody the same way in management, you are going to fail miserably. Mm -hmm. but because that's that whole idea that everybody's a robot and they're all motivated the same way and they all care about the same things and they all see the world the way you see it and they all see the job that they have to do the same way you see it. Once you learn that everybody is different, and they're motivated differently, they have different strengths to draw upon, then you can really get a team to work in ways that, um, that's very cooperative, and amplifies the efforts of everybody in it. That is so true about learning the individual motivators. And so for those of you that are going into leadership roles, I think one of the mistakes that you can make as a new leader is assuming that what motivates you motivates others. And I remember so clearly having an employee, this is back when I worked at Columbus State University in Georgia, and I had a, a staff assistant, so a secretary, a male secretary, and he was a great worker and i remember giving him like having him go home a few times in the afternoon like go on knock it off you know we're, we're we've got it go home spend some time with your wife and then i found out much later because he didn't tell me at the time that was the worst thing i could have done to him he had a military background he'd been in the army for i don't know 26 years or something and he that just stunk to him i mean it just it smacked of you don't want me here. You don't need me. I'm not a valuable member of the, of the team. And here I thought I was rewarding him and I was actually punishing him. <laughs> yeah. I've made those mistakes too. You know, <laughs> I've made the mistake that thinking someone wanted a raise and giving them a raise and wondering why their attitude didn't shift. And then finding out later that really what they wanted was recognition for what they did. Exactly, exactly. I, when I moved from Columbus State to Truman State, I, I met with each staff member individually. And one of the questions I was sure to ask was, what's motivating to you? Come to find out that secretary in, in that iteration of my career, she wanted ice cream. <laughs> so I had like whenever it could be for her, but it could also be for someone else in the team. She would plan these ice cream socials because we had a lot of student workers and we would just say, hey, Friday afternoon at three, we're going to have the ice cream bar set up 
come on over and we'd have all these students that worked for us plus the staff come in and she was just as happy as a clam even when it was for her she was happy to plan it because she loved the ice cream was so rewarding to her and I think it was all about this kind of social aspect of that absolutely absolutely you know I, I had a wonderful uh, office manager and if she was having a bad day a Snickers bar could solve it <laughs> You know, it, it doesn't have to be a big thing. That's, you know, I think the, the, the other thing that I see, and it, just, it drives me crazy, is watching managers, new managers who believe that they have to wield power like a boss, meaning that they're, they think their job is to make everybody do everything. And if they don't make them and they don't look at every little detail and make sure that every little detail is being done, that nothing will get done. And that kind of micromanaging, top-down management will chase a team off faster than anything I've ever seen. Boy, especially millennials, because they're they are not going to put up with that, and they haven't they haven't had that experience growing up virtually ever. So that would be uh, just completely unacceptable to them. Well, absolutely, and and you know my my key to leadership, and I think the reason why I've I have been successful as a leader and why I've been asked to be a leader and I've risen in every organization I've ever been in is I think in terms of servant leadership. Um, when I was the VP of a mortgage lender, I had 52 direct reports. Um, that's, that was too many. So I built out a management team. So I hired a whole management team. Here I was this guy with a BFA in drawing and painting. <laughs> and I, I was authoring a software and I had a guy working for me who had a PhD in statistics and 20 years of database development. And he was my employee. And every day he showed up, I would say, this just doesn't feel right. I feel like I should be working for you. But, but my job was division and then get the obstacles out of the way so, they could, so he could do his job. And uh, go ahead. That, yeah. And so I called myself the chief garbage man, which meant, <laughs> yeah, which means my job is to make sure everything runs right. And if taking out the garbage so someone else doesn't have to do it because they have something more important to do than I have at that moment, then I will take out the garbage. I'll clean the toilets. I'll do the menial work. I don't care because my job is to make sure that everything runs right and that my team has what they need to do their jobs. Absolutely. I'll, I'll never forget when I was in graduate school doing a case study on the Johnsonville Brought Company. For, for some reason, this sticks in my mind, and I was, I've been out of graduate school for over 10 years, but I remember the quote. It was like a pull quote in this article that we had to read from this, the then CEO of the Johnsonville Brock Company, which apparently had quite a turnaround story in its, in its history. But this guy said, the pull quote was from the CEO, my job, as I saw it, was to work myself out of a job. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, there's some really simple things you can do to, to get people on your side. So you do work yourself up out of a job. Well, and, let's talk about that. Let's talk about, so we've got these millennials who are going into and are in leadership roles now. I think that the upper end of the millennials is somewhere around age 32 is, I don't know if I'm off by a lot or not, but I think it's, they're in their thirties now. So some of them mm -hmm. are in leadership roles, many others aspire to be. So let's assume that the person who's going to make that decision about whether to promote them or not is, is one of us, Peter, is, is in our age group in all probability. Uh, what, 
what can that millennial do or show or be in order to kind of bridge that, that generational gap? Well, I think that it, the traditional can-do attitude, meaning that um, you're not afraid to try something new. You're not afraid to fail. Um, if, if there's one thing I see in the millennial group that has, um, that is sort of a generational challenge, it's that they oftentimes have been so successful because their lives have been focused around their success that they're afraid to try something that, where they might possibly fail. And so I will find brilliant people who I know can do a job who won't do it because they're afraid of failure. So if you want to move into leadership, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail. Be willing to fail, but learn from that. Yes, yes. If you can prove that you can learn from your mistakes, leadership is very interested in you. Scared, scared people are not going to be invited into the leadership ranks. I think that's a, that's a great point. It is. And then take ownership. Ownership of your part. And that means your successes, your failures, how you're motivated, where you're demotivated. If you really understand yourself and you can show that to somebody else, then you have a really good chance of proving to them that you can see that in other people and help lead them to success. And, and that really speaks to emotional intelligence as well, being able to own your mistakes, which I like to call them just sort of, I, I like to think of it as winning and learning rather than winning and losing. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So um, we've got this young whippersnapper <laughs> who, who wants to get in the leadership rank. So they want to show that they aren't afraid to make mistakes. They can take calculated risks. They, they do it intelligently. They don't just, they're not reckless, but they are, um, it's a calculated challenge, a calculated risk, um, and that they're not afraid of that. What else do they need to kind of show folks our age in order to get into the leadership ranks? A solutions-based approach to everything. We've already talked about that a little bit, but I think solutions-based is a kind of thinking, not ragging on the problems, but, but presenting solutions. And then um, the ability to articulate a vision and to get other people invested in that vision. Oh, yes. Now, that's the key when you are a manager to getting the millennials and younger to follow you. Um, this is a little thing that I found out and it was, it was an eye opener and mind blowing because I had so many peers who were like just bitching and moaning and sorry for the language, but that's what they were doing about millennials. I can't get them to do anything. They're self-centered. They won't look up from their phones. They won't do this. They won't do that. And I thought about it and I had some really fantastic employees who were millennials and I was trying to figure out why I was having a different level of success and it was because I hire people whose vision is aligned with my vision and I got them invested in the vision, the shared vision of the company. And once they were invested in the vision, they were on board. And if they were looking at their phone, it was because they were Googling something faster on their phone than they could on their computer. Yeah. They were looking at YouTube to solve a problem that they had identified so they could use it on the computer. They were, they were absolutely killing it and crushing every project they gave them. And I was like, wow. So 
my takeaway is, is if you have millennials who are invested in the mission, they're amazing employees. Mm-hmm. So getting people invested in that mission and finding out if you're hiring people, you have to know what excites them before you hire them because it doesn't matter how great a job is if they're not excited about it. If they're not aligned with that vision, they're not going to be good at it. I think that's so true. And I think that, I think that this generational challenge from the, from the flip side also is for millennials to respect the knowledge that comes before them and not automatically think that because someone is of a certain age that they, their, their, for example, their knowledge of technology is outdated or they're, you know, I just got out of B school and so therefore I know the latest, you know, management processes and systems and you don't. I think you have to kind of find that balance where you can respect what's come before you and respect that, that person with 20 or 30 years of experience while introducing your ideas in a way that is respectful. Absolutely right. And, you know, um, my sons are amazing kids and, and uh, excuse me, adults now. And they're, <laughs> they're moving into leadership in their lives. And I always use an example from the military to explain how you can move into leadership in a way that's respectful and use the knowledge of the people in front of you. So during the Vietnam War, um, first lieutenants had an incredibly high casualty rate. And now first lieutenants were were people who came out of college, young men who came out of college, who were commissioned and went to lead before they'd ever been in combat. And the majority of them thought because they'd gone to college, they were better than the staff sergeant who'd been fighting alongside the men who'd been through some stuff and knew some things from the situation that they'd been involved in. And these first lieutenants would say, we're going to do this. And the staff sergeant would say, first lieutenant, it would be my opinion that that'd be a bad mistake. The lieutenant would start to leave a, lead a charge and somebody in the platoon would shoot them from behind to keep from getting killed themselves. <laughs> so what that lesson is, is that person who's been doing the job for 10, 15, 20 years in front of you understands specifics about that job about that company, about the customers, about the culture that you as a newcomer don't. And if you don't pay attention to those lessons, if you don't make them your ally, if you don't walk up to them on the first day and say, wow, I'm so excited to be working with somebody who has so much experience in this company. I would really love to know your thoughts so I can make sure that I've learned the most I can about how we can work together effectively. Then you're going to get shot in the back because they're not going to let you take the company down a bad road. They've watched other people come in who think they know more than, than the experienced people in the company. And if you don't pay attention to them, they won't listen to you and they will actually sabotage you. I think that's so true. And I think it really comes down to having that respect between the generations and understanding and respecting what each brings to the table and not discarding it in kind of a bullish way of, you know, pushing your own agenda. Absolutely. And and there's nothing wrong with pushing an agenda as long as you align it with the people who are already there. There's an art to that. (laughs) There's that, that connection with the people you work with and, and proving that you're their ally and finding out what they need out of their way so that they can accomplish their job better. Exactly. Exactly. One thing I know about millennials um, is that they will not just accept 
the status quo if they don't understand or if it doesn't make sense to them. They, if there's a policy in place that they think is ridiculous, you either need to explain the legitimacy of that policy or maybe it's time to revisit that policy and see if it still makes sense. Because they're not just, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm of the baby boomer generation and we sort of followed, we respect authority and we follow blindly behind those who lead but millennials are not the, those people. And so they just need to understand, and there may be a great reason for that policy, but until you explain it to them, they are not likely to follow along just because they were told to. Well, yep, and I have a great example. Again, in this company I worked for, there was a no cell phone usage on the job policy. I was able to run my own branch. My management style has always been to give people as much leash as I can, and, and, and then to Gently pull them in if they're going down the wrong direction. I started enforcing that policy because I felt like people were on their phones a lot. They were being distracted. But before I enforced it, I was asking the question, I see you're on your phone now. What are you doing? And sometimes someone would be embarrassed and say, uh, yeah, I'm watching a YouTube video that has nothing to do with work. And I would have to say, that's not what we do here. You know, while we're here, we're focused on our customers. But more and more, I started realizing, especially with the sales team and even the service team, they were connecting with their customers through Facebook, through LinkedIn. They were researching ways to solve problems on a technical side that they hadn't been able to figure out from the, from the manuals that we had on hand. Or, or they were problem solving an issue a customer was having and finding a better solution than we currently had. <laughs> but once I realized that, I was like, wow, okay, so let's let's just make sure that we're using these to, to further our agenda to support our customers. I think that's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> I feel like I got this vision of like telling millennials that they can't have their phone at work would be like saying, and, and let us amputate your right arm. Is that okay? <laughs> right. Well, and, and, and we're going to take your, your external hard drive out of your brain. I mean, that's <laughs> what it is. I love it. I love it. This has been fabulous to think about, um, as it has turned out very much a generational conversation about leadership and millennials moving into the leadership uh, ranks. What do you want them to know if they want to reach out to you in any capacity? Well, probably the best way to connect with me is through LinkedIn. I will uh, I'll make sure to send the link so that it's uh, uh, with this podcast so you get the real Peter Berry. I, I do a lot of consulting, uh, and my wife and I travel full-time around the world right now, so uh, LinkedIn is, is really the best way to get me and stay in touch with what I'm doing and what I'm up to, and uh, if you have questions, send me a message. I love answering messages, and I love helping people who, who have questions. Fantastic, Peter. This, is, this has been an amazing conversation, and I think it's a, a very appropriate way to end this arc on leadership. So as I always say to you guys, I want to be your career coach. So don't hesitate to ask me any question about your career, your job search, um, moving into leadership ranks. I work with clients on all of those aspects. You can email me at lesa at exclusivecareercoaching.com. Or, as I said, write me a note in here. You can find me on Facebook, wherever you can find me. And if you're not connected to me on LinkedIn, um, there, I, I don't know, I may not be the only Lisa Edwards, L-E-S-A Edwards on LinkedIn, but I'm pretty easy to find. And I've got big, as I like to tell my clients, I've got big old feet on LinkedIn. I have a very large footprint. So I'm probably the first one that'll come up. So uh, I hope you will connect with me. And I look forward 
to speaking with you next week as we start a new quarter topic. I haven't decided what that is yet. This yet I'm going off this weekend on a retreat to determine how I want to focus my efforts in teaching you and coaching you next quarter. So stay tuned. I'm sure it'll be fabulous. And I hope you have a great week. Take care. You've been listening to the Exclusive Career Coach with Lisa Edwards, CEO of Exclusive Career Coaching. It would be great if you would rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Also, I want to be your career coach, so be sure to ask questions about your career management challenges and job search situation. Until next time.